can't always get what you want. You can't always get what you want. But if you try sometimes, well, you might find. Good morning and welcome to Visionaries. I'm John Lobel, your host, and you'll find us here on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm every Monday at 10 a.m. That's 10 Eastern U.S. time. But since we're totally global, you'll have to figure out what time it is in your part of the world. Also, there are other ways to get to us. You can listen on your phone at 424 203 8046, lots of other ways. I uh, log in with a browser and then plug it into my car radio when I'm in the car. You can catch our back shows in our archive at visionaries.podbean.com. Our special guest today is Mike Silver. Mike's an architect, cultural commentator, professor, student of consciousness, on and on, and one of the smartest people I know. So whenever I have a question like, you know, what is this postmodern take in architecture? I call up Mike and he explains it. Mike, how are you today? I'm pretty good. Good to be here, John. Great. How are you? I'm fine. So listen, Mike, uh, you just sent me uh, your thoughts on the unconscious. So uh, we had a, we were discussing this the other day. Maybe you have some different uh, thoughts about this. What's your take on the unconscious? Okay, so I'm a totally a- uh, amateur in, in this field, but it's, um, I've been studying um, artificial intelligence and um, doing robotics in my lab, so I'm constantly asking myself about the, the question of consciousness. Yeah, can you hear me? Phone off speaker. Oh, okay. Because it's making feedback. Better? Oh, okay. Cool. Is that better? Uh, great. Great. All right. Sorry about that. Um, yeah, so... You know, I'm always kind of curious about how thing, uh, how the mind relates to the, you know, material world, you know, the brain. So, you know, basically been working with computers and currently we're developing a, uh, a humanoid robot that carries bricks, but the, it can fold into a little carrying case. So it's easy to use by a workman on site. So I'm really developing robotics here at UB. But, of course, always the problem of, like, the nature of the mind and, you know, what is intelligence, uh, how does it relate to the world is always a huge question. So I have some weird theories. I don't know if they're – I think maybe a psychologist might laugh at them or someone who's more – um, uh, you know, abreast uh, with these issues. But my, my thinking about the unconscious was maybe it's more of a, com- a, more of a computational system uh, than a inside, uh, separate self inside the mind. So you, we usually think of the unconscious mind as this kind of uh, inner character or homunculus. And this kind of raises the question, well, is there another self inside the self? And, you know, the computational theory seems to solve this problem really well because you can think of the brain as a whole, uh, composition of all these different autonomic systems, some uh, operating digestion, some doing some automatic um, uh, functions in the body that we not you know we don't have to spend conscious effort um, having them work. So, but the but basically the um, unconscious would be just a higher order symbol manipulating system, just like a computer. But it would not have its own mind. In fact, I think really the most important thing to define uh, the difference between an unconscious system or a non-conscious system, I think is a better term than a conscious system, would be that 
the conscious system has awareness, has experience, and, what, and the other one does not. So you can think of the computers having none of those properties. So the computational model, the unconscious, might be a much more interesting way of framing how automatic uh, thoughts and symbols and um, manipulated imagery eventually rise to the surface and they become conscious. They could be driving us uh, to do things compulsively, but we always have, I think, this thing we call free will or free won't, which is a higher level property of our, you know, um, waking mind, right? So we have the ability, uh, I think this is a very obvious sort of natural function of being um, uh, a conscious being is that we do have free will. So even if the, the scientists want to argue that, you know, things are happening below our awareness that we're not in any control of, once they rise to the surface, we have several choices. We can react to it, and therefore we are kind of controlled by that automatic system, or we could choose to be completely indifferent. And in a way, uh, you could suspend any kind of attachment to any of your compulsions. And I think that's like what uh, Buddhist mindfulness meditation is. You know, just you let all sorts of crazy thoughts arise, you sit there, and you just don't grasp at them. So I think you can expand your wakefulness, but you, I don't think you lose free will, and I don't think the unconscious is another mind that we have to fight against. It's just another automatic system. So what, uh, to, you know, zero in on this a little bit more, what is consciousness? Ah, that's a great, that's a great uh, problem. Well, it depends upon what you mean by consciousness. I think you can come up with a very, very basic framework or definition, and we can call that just experience, uh, awareness. It's not self-awareness. It's not um, rational thinking. It's not um, all of these secondary um, sort of definitions we usually assume, assume are conscious, but basically just the raw experience of something. This is a very mysterious property of of the mind, how one has an experience, how one see, you know, the feeling of the color red, you know, this is a kind of, this is a hard thing to even pin down what that exactly is. So I think you can take Nagel's idea that there's something it's like to have a sort of a conscious mind, something it's like to ha be a human or be a John Lobel or a Mike Silver. So that's a, such a uh, fundamentally um, simple sort of framing of what consciousness is that I think that from there you can you can start to examine all the different problems associated with how do you relate those subjective first-person points of view to material objects, right? So one is subjective and one is objective, and then how do those two worlds connect? And that's always been the big the big mystery is like how are those two things connected? So there's all sorts of theories of how these uh, two things are related. There's idealism, which says that everything you see is a, pro uh, a function of, that, of a mind. There's materialism that says matter is fundamental and the mind comes out of that. There's dualism, which says that you're dealing with two different substances and you, know, you have a mental stuff and a, a, a physical stuff. And then there's another position which I, I'm, I think is gr gaining a lot of traction in the philosophy of mind, and that's neutral monism. And that's an, a really difficult one to wrap, around, wrap your head around. It has some traditional roots in, in philosophers, philosophies from the past, like Spinoza. But neutral monism says there's a third substance, which is neutral, which is neither physical nor mental. But depending on, on how you um, – and that neutral stuff is a property, uh, an event, or a quality – and depending on how you relate the, the quality um, in the neutral stuff to other things, you get material thing. If you relate it in a different way, you get a mental thing. So, for instance, the color red could be just a photon 
bouncing off a series of surfaces that wouldn't really have the color red until it hit the retina and became a psychological phenomenon, right? So now you have two ways of framing what, what the color red is. It could be a purely physical process with no mental qualities to it, and you can have it as a, a mental experience of the color red depending upon how its functional relationship in the world. It's very hard to understand uh, neutral monism because it's not really clear what the nature of the neutral stuff is, but they're positing this idea that it's neutral between the physical and the mental. So, it's really interesting. So is that saying that neither that matter and experience are not real but uh, derivative? Yes, right. So, I mean, we're t basically, this is a late-order theory. I mean, it comes from Ernest Mach, uh, later developed by William James, and then also into um, uh, perfected and refined by Russell. And their, their theory was basically that you, have, you, have, you, can, you can define things in the world in the most fundamentally simple way as events, right? Or as uh, Russell likes to call it, event particulars. And that's such a vague term that it can easily slide into a mental event or a physical event. So that the neutrality of the term seems to solve a lot of the problems of like pinning it down as either a material process or a, or a, um, a mental process. So does, uh, um, does, does this enter into your work on robotics or are these like separate interests of yours? Well, I mean, the, I think the really big question that I ask myself as an architect every day, why is the mind-body important? Who cares about it? And, and why should we be thinking about it? So I, I think if you look at contemporary architectural theory right now, you're, it's dominated by really a kind of materialism. Uh, if you look at most of the movements uh, in, in uh, biofabrication and sustainable design and parametrics, um, even modernism, you can even go that far back, it's a materialist sort of metaphysics, right? We say that the matter is fundamental, the building derives its value by expressing its, its materials and methods of production, and therefore your, level, your, 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 your basic thesis about what architecture should be revolves around this core metaphysics. But if you call into question the materialist metaphysics, then you, you're going to weaken the foundations um, that those styles rest on. So, so let's go really, back. You listed yeah. uh, three or four current movements. Why don't you explain for our listeners what each of those sure. are? Well, modernism, right, you know, the, the, took the idea of mass production, you know, the machine age, uh, used um, new materials, steel, large sheets of glass, reinforced concrete, and then built their, uh, their, 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 um, their aesthetics based on an expression of the quality and properties and possibilities of those materials. It's no different from, let's say, sustainable design, where, uh, which I'm all for, absolutely. Um, but if you think about it, it's, you know, it's basically, again, a kind of more like a functionalist approach to design. The thing has to be sustainable. It doesn't give you any idea on what the artistic sort of value Have of that. Have you encountered anybody who defines sustainable? Oh, it's, it's a completely open field now, and it ranges between um, work on energy systems to things like um, uh, biomaterials, and, and, you know, it's a wide-ranging field where people are just trying to make things, uh, you know, more environmentally friendly, non-toxic materials, materials that require very little energy, you know, to produce their... their um, 
you know, they're integrated with systems of um, sustainable energy production. So, you know, there's a whole body of work around that. And this is like very important stuff because it's going to save the planet. But again, it's still rooted in the idea that it's the, the, the architecture's value comes from its material underpinnings. Um, and and those are eco- what's biofabrication? Biofabrication, uh, for instance, you could start to engineer a piece of DNA, right? Um, and you can have um, DNA start manufacturing proteins, and proteins can start to self-assemble into structures that since you can control the genetic data, you can make these these constructions almost like living uh, buildings. Um, Yeah, so CRISPR, this is an interesting um, development in in biology as they developed a uh, bacteria that they can use to edit very precisely the code on a strand of DNA. So now not only can you map the genome, and that happened a while back with the development of gene sequencing, that's the mapping of the genetic structure, now you can actually go in there and recode it. So it's a very ominous thing, you know, and I think the, the culture has to have a very you know, a serious debate about how much they want to tamper with this genetic information and what kind of, you know, uh, life-saving products that can come out of it and also what kind of monsters can come so, out of this. So since uh, I've got my uh, smartest colleague on the on the line here, can you explain <laughs> for our audience what is CRISPR? Oh, CRISPR is a um, recently developed... Um, uh, it's a kind of a bacteria that you can program to go into the DNA and resequence the the um, the uh, molecules on the uh, on the DNA. So you can control and edit the data on the genetic material in the genetic material, and then so therefore you can reprogram DNA to generate all sorts of other kinds of proteins. So now it's a really uh, 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 significant tool for for developing um, ways of of reshaping genetic code. For instance, one of the funniest CRISPR uh, applications I saw is they literally stored an entire GIF, uh, a movie, of a galloping horse uh, on a piece of DNA, and then they retrieved it. So literally, they now can store a movie on a strand of DNA. So this is a really interesting idea of the media reaching down to the level (laughs) of your genetic uh, structure. Very ominous stuff. Yeah, yeah. So, but here's the thing is if these are all theories of materiality um, that, you know, say that matter is fundamental, our bodies are are absolutely the source of everything, all of the knowledge, our brains come from our bodies. This is a this is the materialist metaphysics. And a lot of the interesting problems in the in, in philosophy that are concerned with how the mind relates to the body, there's a lot of alternative metaphysics, all other alternative views. So if we're going to um let's say, not be too attached to a materialist view. What are some of the alternatives? Yeah, so, um, well, I, I, think, I think we should back up a little bit because, first of all, if we just say um, architecture theory and the way the world works, even you can say capital, capitalist culture, it's all based on the, the reality of uh, the circulation of materials. But if there's something more to the world, right, uh, minds, right, uh, feelings, desires, you know, uh, uh, pains, if there's something more to the mind that can't be reduced to a physical thing, then, then that's a really interesting uh, push against the prevailing kind of a- scientific attitude of the world. In fact, I would say the mind-body problem is important to, in two ways. It, it pushes science to the edge of, of where its competency is, and it raises the fundamental question of even what is, what is the material world, right? So um, Noam Chomsky has this amazing um, quote. He said that uh, the body doesn't exist in any 
uh, intelligible form. And what he meant by that is we really don't even know what matter is. So, for instance, chemistry can't be reduced to physics. Um, you have very weird kind of ideas of, of curved space-time and quantum weirdness that are not uh, rational. They explain the behavior of the world, but they don't, make, they don't really under, make, tell us what the world is. So, so let, I don't wait, think the, before, yeah. before we go back to that, uh, why don't you summarize for our listeners what's the mind-body problem? Okay. Well, I think the, the mind-body problem is how do uh, subjective mental states arise, uh, relate or arise from or, or exist in relationship to physical states. So you have the physical world is, a, you know, this was defined in sort of Descartes' terms. Um, there's a world of extended objects in space. They have scale. They have tactility. They're measurable, and they're objectively observable. In other words, you, you and I can all share a kind of uh, understanding or an agreement based on our language about what a material object is. But with subjective experience, is quite different, right? I can't access what it's like for you to experience color red or taste a piece of chocolate. It's a, it's a, a private experience. It's not open to objective inquiry. So if I went and measured your brain while you're eating chocolate, I could learn a lot about what's happening in the neurons and the neurochemical processes, but I'll know nothing about what you what your experience of the red is. So there's something very weird about these two th worlds interconnecting or interacting or how one comes out of the other or the other one reduces the other. None of that has been solved. And in fact, what um, Chomsky says is that we can't, since we can't really define what matter is, because we can zoom in down and we, you know, we get, we get the standard model, but is there something below the standard model? We don't know. So, I, and scientists will be read, will readily admit that they really don't know what the, what they're measuring, what it really is in itself. So you might not even be able to pose the mind-body problem because it's like asking, why do things happen? Why do things happen? This is an example given by Chomsky. Uh, why do things happen is not really a question. It's, it has the appearance of a question as the structure of an interrogative sentence, but it doesn't really refer to anything because we don't know what happen means. So we don't know what matter is, so the mind-body problem might be not even be uh, posable. That's one position in, in, in the philosophy of mind. The other position is that we, we can define the uh, mind-body problem in terms of something that's conscious and something that's not conscious. This is um, another way of framing it. So, for instance, we, could have, we can observe things in the world that don't have any desires or intentions. They, they, they just operate mechanically. And that we could then distinguish in opposition to someone or some being or some subject that has intentions. So that you could pose the mind-body problem in that form. So it's a very live um, sort of discussion within, within contemporary thought. And it, it's something that I think would be really interesting to bring into, um, in, into design theory. I, I also think that it's important because it's really just an, the mind-body problem is just a way, another way of contemplating fate, right? I mean, we want to know who we are, where we, where we came from, and where we're going. I mean, the basic, really fundamental pro questions of human life that concern everybody, no matter, you know, whether they're a butcher, an architect, or, you know, a politician. These are all uh, questions that c uh, cut down to the core of, you know, human concerns. So I think that's, that's why I'm interested in it. And also, I think it's, you know, if you do any basic uh, study in this field, you can see that uh, materialism is, a, is really in a marginalized, uh, marginalized theory. It's, it's not as, it's, it's been, it's been kind of undermined a lot by current thinkers from, you know, Thomas Nagel to uh, David Chalmers, 
Um, so, th so there are there. If we're in a field of design and we're still dealing with a kind of out of date um, materialism, then I think we we have some work to do. Okay, that raises another interesting problem, and that is. <clears throat> If we look at the, uh, say, our field is architecture and architectural theory, and mm -hmm. we see a, a particular school of thought coming into favor, coming into fashion, and others fading, and it's seldom the coherence of the argument that leads one to dominate for a while, but mm -hmm. rather swings of fashion. Where, where did new ideas come from, and how are they justified? Hmm, that's a great question. I think, uh, you know, I don't think there are really new ideas. There are just ideas uh, configured in different ways in a given context, and I think that's why it's really important for us to ask the question, well, why is this really important to even think about, especially in a period where we have serious, like, political and global problems, global warming and heightened chances of nuclear war. I mean, these are really pressing concerns. Why would we even really care about that? So I think you have to really situate the question of style within that sort of domain. So we want to make sure that, yes, you know, the, the mind-body problem has some kind of relevance to human beings. And like I said, that's, it's a deep, deep, has a deep relevance, but also that contemplating of those kinds of conditions, like the, the fate of the individual relative to the larger world around us, I think is super important. So, I, I mean, I, I think that you could do, you could, I noticed this one thing, and maybe this kind of is a roundabout way of answering the question. There's two possible positions you can have. You can be a realist or you can be an anti-realist. A, a realist says there's a world out there separate from the observer, and it's, you know, you could disappear and it'll still be there. That's kind of Einstein's position. Um, or an anti-realist that says there's, there's no, the mind and, and the material world are, are interrelated. You can't have one without the other. Well, I noticed that it didn't matter which one you picked. You'd still have to deal with, you know, sustainability, with uh, human conflict, with all of the um, things that make the world really an unpleasant place to be, right? So because... If you're one with the world, as the anti-realists say, well, you know, what happens to the planet is going to affect you because you can't take yourself out of it. And then let's say you can take yourself out of it, you know, and you're a little bit distant from it and the world is there. Even the world's going to push back on you. It's going to bite back because even if you're uh, separate from it, it's still going to affect you. So because you can't be absolutely separate. So, so um, let me let me list three uh, <laughs> thoughts about that and mm -hmm. maybe get some reactions. One is, uh, I think it can uh, cease to matter. Uh, I, I, I don't know if I'll get this exactly right, but Ronald Reagan had a secretary of the environment who said, we don't have to worry about these environmental issues since the world is going to end in a couple of years. Right. So there's a belief system which would change uh, how you react to all this. And I think some of the conflict in the world today are a function of differences in you know, who we are and where we're going and where we came from. The, right. Uh, another one is <clears throat> I, when I was in school, Oswald Spengler was still somewhat in fashion, nowhere like he was in the 1930s. And today, 
there's a real turn against him. None of my colleagues mm-hmm. read him. But it's not based on having disproved any of his positions. It's just out of fashion. And mm-hmm. then in our field in architecture, modern architecture turned against monumentality. And we might define monumentality as celebrating um, qualities of our culture. Right. And in turning against monumentality, we then find ourselves in World War II where we're fighting for survival, but also for values. And then mm-hmm. the modern architect said, gee, I guess there are some values which are worth uh, monumentalizing. And so they had to go back and look again at monumentality. So mm-hmm. I think, you know, it does matter what the values are, and it actually can change how we regard the important things we do every day. Well, I, I definitely agree that the value system structures how, you know, history unfolds, for sure. No doubt about that. But I'm just saying in terms of whether the world is separate, exists apart from the human, right, can exist without a human, or whether you can't have an observer without a world, you both end up, they both end up in a certain sense in, a same, in the same place. One's going to either push back, so it's going to affect the person that's alive, so it does matter, independent of their desires, or, or it's, you're going to be so interconnected with it, it's going to result in the same kind of effect on the individual. So I see them both, I see them both as ways of making human beings responsible for the world. That's why I really want to stress that, because the mind-body problem can seem kind of esoteric, kind of irrelevant, a kind of, uh, you know, kind of uh, navel-gazing, right? A kind of uh, um, higher-order esoteric uh, activity which, with no impact on the the way you know human lives are are, are lived, right? So I, I think that you can, at a certain at a certain point, you can see this stuff is very lofty, you know, and and detached. But I don't. I think it's actually just the opposite. It reaches really deep down into the core of like who we are, and and I think that's why it's important. Cool. So yeah. So if we have like for instance an architecture theory that's just based on a materialist metaphysics, and then that materialist metaphysics is is somehow either wrong or not not really on 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 the on the on the right path, or it's been discredited, then I think it's interesting to call into question the very basic foundations of contemporary thinking in design, which is, in my opinion totally derived from, you know, a kind of almost modernist notion of uh, performance, functionality, expression of, of, of materials and, and, and construction. That's where the meaning of the work is derived from. But if that metaphysics is, 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 is not really, is incomplete or is even completely off, then, you know, we're, we're, we're sailing a boat on an imaginary river. And I think that's where I think uh, design could really learn a lot from philosophy. So some of these ideas in architecture get expressed in the discussions of student work during juries or reviews. What mm. are some of the ideas you've encountered in uh, juries and reviews? What's going on in that world? Well, you know, uh, you have um, uh, the domination of, of, uh, by, of the field by, um, you know, new digital fabrication technologies and computers. So you have a lot of um, uh, work that plays with uh, form and, and production of how those forms are made and what are the robotic systems that can give you different formal effects. So you have those kinds of um, 
I would say it's an all-pervasive uh, condition now. The, the sort of the digital turn has really sort of dominated architectural thinking. There are some people that say, well, the mind is a, is a, a computer. And I think that's, a, that's something that's very easy to debunk. I mean, how could you, how could you compute a mind if it has no uh, location or it's not something that you can turn into another object? Or how can you even I – mean, some, there's something also about experience – which is timeless. In other words, if you're in the moment, you can't be in the past or the future. And then if you're in the moment, how thick is that moment, right? That moment would have to have extension and therefore would have to encompass pastness and futurity. So in a way, experience is outside of the framework of time. It's timeless, right? So a computer is a calculating machine that implements uh, transformations of values over time. So you have a completely different uh, One's a mechanical system. One is completely not. Uh, not. It's the opposite of a computation. So you even have the computational uh, idea sort of pro pro providing the field with a metaphysical basis, and then things begin to be thought in terms of these realities, and then you get projects that evolve out of that. In terms of school, you know, the, there's a fascination with the kind of forms that these tools can be tools can generate. And so you get basically much more involved in, in discussions about production and form and, rel and how they are, the computer shapes materials giving new tools. And I'm all for that. But I think there's another level, right? And especially when you start to get into robotics and artificial intelligence. Um, and, you know, the last 20 years, those issues have been pretty much bracketed. So you would have really just an exploration of how industry is being transformed by digital technologies, additive manufacturing, CNC milling, all the kinds of robotic systems that are being used to produce cars, objects, uh, buildings, etc. The idea of like these systems becoming more and more intelligence and then what was intelligence, how far can the intelligence go? Can we have a mind coming out of that? These, these topics were you know, sort of bracketed. I think now they're coming back into the discussion because, you know, there are now contemporary systems that are running sort of machine learning and artificially intelligent uh, programs that are effect actually operating in our daily lives without us even knowing it. So these now are becoming bigger questions. But I haven't really seen a lot of work in the studios around um, AI, um, but I think that's going to that's going to happen. And so as soon as we shift to that, we're going to get into really the difficult questions. And then we're back to the mind body problem. Like what would what is the role of artificial intelligence in society? What kinds of robots do we want to make? Um, what kind of can we have conscious machines? We, you know, you know, if we don't know what consciousness is now and how it relates to the physical world, how are we going to engineer that? So is that even an engineering problem? So we have, uh, you know, a interesting sort of future in front of us about how um, to, to deal with these questions, and they're all, I think, connected to the mind-body problem. So let's get to a fundamental issue there, but for just a moment, let's do uh, a break here and say this is John LaBelle on Visionaries, and our guest today is Mike Silver, and <clears throat> we're talking about everything. So since we're talking about everything, I hang out in life extension circles and just going to a foresight conference in a couple of weeks on that, and I work on Timeship, which our listeners can find at timeship.org. And it's generally held in these circles uh, that one way to achieve extreme life extension might be to extract ourself 
from our um, uh, aging, fallible uh, biological brain and reinstall ourselves in reliable chips. So mm-hmm. in this point of view, the brain is seen as hardware, the mind is seen as software, and that software could run maybe on chips as opposed to running in the uh, biological brain, and mm-hmm. therefore the self could achieve uh, a life extension. What have you run into in terms of those thoughts, and does that make sense in terms of your understandings of consciousness? Well, again, those theories um, rely on or are based on the idea that we do know what matter is, and we know what, how it relates to uh, mental states. Um, that model is not provable. I mean, again, we don't know. It's a big question whether that's true or not. I, 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 you know, the, the, the idea that um, the mind is in the brain seems to me a little bit limited. Um, you know, who, who's to say it's not in some kind of field of energy that surrounds the body, that extends outside of the body? There's that uh, Stuart Hammerhoff uh, idea of a kind of quantum consciousness, right? So, you know, if the brain gets frozen, maybe those quantum states they migrate somewhere else. And if you try to revive the brain, who knows, could they come back to that uh, relationship to that local uh, set of particles? I have no idea. And what is it that we're actually um, talking about when we say that there's a material system in the brain that has a mentality? We have no idea. (laughs) It's 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 a mystery. In fact, there is a position in the philosophy of mind called Mysterianism, and this is Colin McGinn's um, uh, contribution to the to the, the the field that we might not ever know the answer to this because our cognitive structure doesn't allow us to answer these questions. We have just a limited kind of structure of the brain that there are certain problems that we can't understand. Uh, this is also a point position shared by Chomsky. He calls it truism because it basically is just articulating the limits of human understanding. So for instance, a certain organism like a bee could navigate in ways that a human being can, can't. Uh, so there are capable psychological or mental functions in the bee that humans don't have. And then likewise, there's functions in the human mind or, and brain that the bee doesn't have. And you have different animals with different cognitive structures, all with different kinds of capacities. So it could be just as a bee is limited in one way, a human is also limited in another. But that's not to say there's a, not a possibility that you could uh, imagine um, an alien somewhere out in the cosmos that has solved the mind-body problem, regards the problem as something very easy to solve, and wonders, scratching their head, why, if they even have a head, why the humans can't figure this out. So that's basically Mysterianism in a nutshell. We don't know. So. I would take Pascal's wager uh, seriously when it comes to, you know, freezing the body and hoping that it can be revived because you don't, you don't know. It's worth a shot. And if you have the money, give it a shot. It's, uh, do it. See, it's, a, it's worth an ex- – no, no experiment is a failure because you can always learn something. So my feeling is you can't answer that question. It's, you know, it's better to give it a shot than to just to, you know, so sweep it under the rug. So – I think the Mysterianism position is very good, um, but I, and I also love um, what William Burroughs said. Um, he said, Re- evolution did not come to a reverent halt with Homo sapiens. So the possibility that uh, a human being could evolve a higher form of intelligence 
either by, by, by transforming biologically or transforming cognitively is always an option. But at this stage, we, we, don't, have a, we don't have a clear theory, and therefore the, the question still remains a mystery, and hence the Mysterian uh, name. Cool. Yeah. So, uh, Mike, tell us what else you, you what do you, wh- where are you, what, uh, you know, what's your, uh, what, do you, what do you do day to day and what have you been working on? Well, I'm, I've been working in four particular specific areas, um, some a little bit more than most. Um, so one of the uh, things that I'm doing here at University of Buffalo is I'm uh, working with uh, some colleagues down at the uh, uh, center for Computation, and that's a uh, big supercomputing center, and um, doing a lot of high-performance computing simulations for um, uh, littoral sites to understand uh, sediment flows and how those sediment flows, the complexity of those flows, could you know relate to architectural issues. Uh, that's so, so that's one area I'm really interested in the idea of you know um, the increase speed uh, in computers and what that can do. So, for instance, a supercomputer 20 years ago uh, would have been able to just maybe rotate a 3D model. We can do that now on our desktop. But a supercomputer today, you have all sorts of other um, possibilities. So the term high-performance computing is constantly shifting in terms of what it can do because the speeds increase. Um, and I think even though Moore's Law slowed down a little bit, I think they're making a lot of progress in quantum computing. So I th- I would imagine that the the increase in computing power is 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 gonna, a steady increase in computing power is probably an assured part of our future, and I think we should start thinking about speed. So I, and I'm gonna, recalling yeah. about 1985 in uh, at uh, Pratt, where we've both been off and on over the years. Somebody brought in a computer demonstration, and mm. they created a uh, uh, a cube. And then I said, oh, could you slice that diagonally? And they (laughs) said, sure. And they did it. And then we waited 20 minutes. (laughs) So I said, well, don't do that again. (laughs) That's interesting. Well, well, I'm curious. What kind of machine was that running on? It was Was interesting. It was an Apple II that he had set up to emulate a Mac. Wow. Interesting. That's interesting. Yeah, so I mean, I, I think again, that's a great example of how you you know the the the, the power of computing is going to and and its assured increase is going to have a huge impact on on what we can do. And I think as these machines increase in power, you got you know more sophisticated forms of artificial intelligence able to process sensory data in in in, in complex sensory data at ever higher levels of resolution. I think this is going to bring you all kinds of uh, new kinds of automated systems. Um, uh, that's a, that's I think an exciting field. I, you know, I think one of the one of the the amazing things about quantum computers is that ever since we first talked about it, actually you were the one that introduced me to the topic. It's been what five eight years maybe since we had that last talk. I mean, the amount of progress that they've done is is pretty astounding. If you just follow. Uh, quantum computing on on MIT Technology Review. There's great articles on you know they're racing uh, against you know uh, uh, companies are racing against each other to produce more and more sophisticated machines, um, and it's that's exciting. So I I remember when I was at Pratt as a student, um, I saw a magazine with a guy holding a microchip, and this was eighty eighty three. Little did I know, within 10 years from that point, I would have one of those operating on my desktop, and I 
that would be the first thing I could think of was doing word processing. And, so, and those microchips, if you look close, you could see the transistors. <laughs> right, exactly. They're not they're not even the kind of density that you have now on the on the chips. So I think that I think we can look forward to even though Moore's law is slowing down within this period, there's gonna I think quantum computing will 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 really uh, fill in the gap. There might be a, a lag time, a, a you know a, a period where there is real kind of sort of leveling off. But I think that won't last for very long. So tell our audience, what is quantum computing and why is it an issue? So quantum computing is a fundamentally different type of computing than classical computing because it doesn't use... um, uh, bits or switches. It uses qubits and it uses the p- weird properties of quantum mechanics to make computations. And so one of the weird properties is that is entanglement. So literally, if you entangle one particle to another, you, you can you can alter one and it'll instantaneously affect the other. And so you have now a way of relating two particles um, using a um, a function that you can then use it as a switching mechanism. And then there there has instead of you know, two states on and off, you have a third state, which is called the super superimposition. Um, the, op- the ability to compute on micro, uh, subatomic particles or on, not subatomic particles, on, on atoms allows you to have a very small scale switching device, whereas a transistor is fairly large when you compare it to uh, the, the, the atomic scale. So now you've been able to shrink more and more things into a smaller, smaller space. You can do computations using three three functions instead of two, and you can start to um, exploit some of the weirdness of um, quantum mechanics, in other words, simultaneity. So instead of feeding information through a, a serial strip one bit at a time, you can run these computations in parallel across many, many different um, entangled particles, and you get basically massively parallel computation on a very small scale. So that's, that, that you, alone you can start to see how uh, it would produce exponential increases in computing power. Um, and, that's, and they've been able to do this. You know, I mean, the machines require you, uh, very low temperatures to operate, and they're very sophisticated big things. It's not something you can put in a phone. But you, could, you can probably build extremely um, fast computers in a, in a server, some, in, in, to get in something like a server farm, and, and you could you know, uh, do computation uh, you know, basically wirelessly. You don't need to have the hardware on your desk. You know, it could be in the cloud. So with cloud computing and quantum computing, I see this as a kind of like expansion of, of possibilities for what computers can do. And then that gets into basically command and control systems for robotics. And I think that's really interesting because you can get more sophisticated behavior from robotic machines if you can deal with more data, you can deal with more sensory information and more computing power. Then you've got... Uh, uh, the potential increase in the abilities of machines to do things that humans do. So um, the robot would be wouldn't have the um, comp- have to have all its computation on board, but could be accessing the cloud. Sure, absolutely, yeah. I, I think more importantly is just the increase in computing power, and then you begin to see if you can do so much more, so much quick, so much. Uh, you, for instance, you could take much more um, sophisticated or dense information from the environment, you can process that quickly. Um, whereas right now, you know, computers, if you have some scanning information, there's ways of having to deal with it where it kind of chokes the machine and things are slow and cumbersome, but speed will affect the ability for this thing to uh, operate in, you know, more, more comp- 
complex ways. Now, we're not, I'm not saying that it's going to give us a mind or a machine that has, you know, consciousness. That's still um, a very difficult sort of um, problem to frame in terms of engineering expertise. But it could give you um, a machine that does everything that a human does, and it just behaves the, like a human, but it doesn't have the inner experience. And actually, I think that's a really good model. I call it a servant zombie. In other words, it's a machine that doesn't have any feelings. It doesn't have any experiences, but it has the outward behavior of a human being. And that's great because now you can use that uh, machine as an extension of your own body, and then it becomes a tool. Uh, tools, you can't, if you call somebody a tool, it's an insult, right? Because you don't want to use a person, right? So anything that, as soon as you involve feelings and, and experiences, you have to give uh, that artificial being uh, all the rights as a human. So it sort of negates the prob possibility that we can evolve these tools. And, you know, evolving a tool uh, that will help human beings is much more exciting than, you know, having to produce more uh, intelligence in the world that then you have to feed, give rights, and then, you know, then you can't really exploit them as a way of making, making human, humanity better. I mean, some would argue that, for instance, and I think we talked about this earlier, that there's two possibilities for artificial consciousness. Let's call that uh, AC instead of AI. So you can have two problems with artificial consciousness. You can have it become so intelligent, and this is the science fiction sort of model, that it would uh, basically enslave us, right? I mean, they would you know, dominate us and get rid of us. That's the science fiction model. The other possibility, if indeed an artificial consciousness is possible, maybe it's so intelligent that it, um, it, it, it penetrates into the logic of compassion. It realizes that compassion is the only solution to everything. So it becomes a very loving machine, and maybe it therefore becomes like a teacher, right? Calms us down. Maybe it solves world, you know, world, pro world problems by having us sort of in a, uh, um, in a, a kind of student-teacher mode. But then again, it would be in a, a hierarchy where it would dominate us because it would be more intelligent. But maybe it would be a compassionate kind of benevolent uh, intelligence. So those are the kinds of weird theories that get involved, uh, that, that start to evolve when you start to think about a machine as um, uh, a conscious machine. But I think if you think of it as an unconscious machine, then I think you can really start to uh, talk about its implementation within the sort of social structure we have now. For instance, <clears throat> you know, if you have machines that replace human labor, you're going to have all, all sorts of problems there. Um, but you might also consider replacing um, you know, human labor, so, the point, so human beings have more time for leisure, more time to pursue, you know, their own mental and spiritual development. You can argue that as well. Um, so there's a possibility that, you know, there might be a utopian sort of side to it, but there also might be a dystopian side to it. So you might have social unrest because the robotics would favor the existing power structures, and so therefore you'd have a, a wealth concentrated in the smaller and smaller hands, and you know all, all these other people are left unemployed with no resources. Or, like Bill Gates said, you could tax the robots, and you can produce a socialist robotics where you know all the robots are taxed, everybody gets a universal basic income, and then you have you know humanity back to where it is, you know, just as a kind of you know all the troubles that we have or all the beautiful things we create, you know, we have that situation. But now we're not um, having to you know be enslave ourselves to um, you know sort of some corporate overlord. <clears throat> so that's that's a possibility. Wait, which way it goes is anyone's. Best guess. I think there's a light side, and light side, and a dark side. How it plays out is again, you know, uh, a difficult thing to predict. But it's, I think it's interesting to propose the different models. Yeah, and in uh, a book I strongly recommend, bring 
everybody up to date, just came out a few weeks ago, Max Tegmark's Life 3.0. He discusses all this, and the dilemma he sees is either, well, if these robots are zombies and are not, or these artificial intelligence are zombies and not conscious, when they take over and replace us, the universe will lose consciousness because right. it's our awareness of the universe that you know, makes it beautiful, the fact that we can see it. If there's no one there to experience it, then it's no longer beautiful. Right. There's a flaw to that because, again, if we don't really know what the relationship between mental states and physical states are or mental states and uh, uh, processes in the brain, if we don't know that, we might not understand how consciousness could exist in other forms and in other ways and in other, and other types of consciousness could exist in the, in, in the universe. So we might not be um, you know, the only ones there. Even if we can't find physical bodies out there like us, there might be minds of a totally different type. Uh, that are undetectable to given our con uh, cognitive limitations. So I think that that theory um, is a little bit sketchy because it's founded on a kind of um, false notion that we can really answer the question that, oh, we know what consciousness is. It's in humans. And there it is. And if we make an artificial one, we've got a way of continuing our type of sort of anthropomorphized notion of what consciousness is. So I think that's a bit of a problem. We really don't know. Um, I think not knowing and admitting we don't, don't know can actually uh, open up the possibilities that there's other types of being. Um, I, 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 the Buddhists have really interesting said that there's beings all around us. We're just not aware of them. Uh, and they exist on diff in different in forms of embodiment and different dimensions. So, uh, and you can actually tune your mind improve it through meditations, you can start to see these things. Like, I don't know if that's true, and I'm not advocating that as a position, but as a thought experiment, as a kind of uh, mythical cos cosmology, it's, there's, some, there's some relevance there. There's some profound ideas behind that, that maybe we just have to re recognize that we have a certain limit that we're at, not that that's a fixed limit, we can maybe be able to go beyond it, but at this period, point in time, recognizing that limit, I think, is very important. Um, so, yeah, so I mean, I, I think that's the, the, the Tegmark position is a little bit um, ba uh, shaky. Right. So, Mike, you're at a research university. What um, the, the stuff that we've been talking about today, is this the discourse where you are? And if not, what is the discourse and who do you speak with about this stuff? Well, I think I think my my discursive um, arena is is spread across broad um, range of schools. Um, not that I'm you know involved in those discourses in terms of an active participant in conferences, but I do follow them. But you know I'm interested in in what's happening at SciArc and you know GSD and and and, and Pratt and here. I mean, so there's a lot of so theory is spread across these different schools and. I, and, and what I what I've been seeing right now um, is the emergence of a, a, a sort of reactionary uh, trend in theory called object-oriented ontology. It's really basically um, after 20 years of uh, discussion of blurred boundaries and networks and and um, interconnecting self-organizing system. There's a return to Heidegger and the idea of the object, kind of in almost like an Anne Randian sense of the object as being real. So you have um, 
uh, a recovery of this notion that, you know, now let's study objects as, as something that we think of as real. Um, so I think that's a kind of reactionary move. I call, I call it the Johnny Ramone maneuver. Uh, Johnny Ramone, the, the guitarist for the Ramones, uh, claimed he loved Nixon. And I always thought, you know, that's really interesting. He, why would a punk rocker, you know, who's uh, all of his colleagues are anarchists, why would he, you know, like Richard Nixon? Well, of course, you know, if you can, the only way to be, maintain yourself in a state of anarchy with all your anarchists around you is you have to produce some kind of difference, right? So it's going to be, I like Johnny, I, I like Richard Nixon. But actually, if you think about it, that reactionary trend is just another form of conservatism. So it's not anarchy and it's not even really creative. It's just stuck on the dark side of the opponent's system of values. So I think the, the recovery of this idea of the object, and um, I think that's a kind of uh, uh, dead end. It's a little bit, rea it's a little bit of a, um, it's not really a creative move. It's, it's, it's really trapped in, 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 and tied uh, to a very kind of, uh, predictable, um, you know, antithesis. So what to, would be an example of object-oriented ontology? Well, they don't know, right? They're, they're, they're now proposing all sorts of pro uh, projects that are like that. So, you know, the formal, the formal uh, style I've seen uh, proposed is not really well thought out yet. I mean, this is basically a theory that they're they're trying to advance um, and uh, as a framework for making work. I haven't I, I haven't really seen the difference between uh, an object-oriented ontologist work and a and a and a blob. But I mean that's that's still because it's a nascent theory and, and they're really trying to search for new ways of working. I mean it's not like they're engaging quantum computing or anything like that. So I think that's a that's a interesting. Um, um, sort of development in the field. I want, I'm really curious to see where it goes. I'm not attacking it necessarily. I, I find it sort of a little bit limiting on the theoretical plane, but it might, who knows, produce something really interesting. But the forms, those, those are contested. They're still under development. There's a lot of people trying to uh, just even produce theory. So it's not like when you had the computer come around, you had blob theory. Blob theory was you know, developed alongside the technologies and there were specific forms that came out. Here now, you, you have the same basically basic computing systems, but now you have a different philosophy applied to it. So what that's going to be like in terms of a new style, that's anybody's guess. But on a theoretical level, I think it's sort of limited. And what else is... So it's interesting when I asked you about Buffalo, you talked about architecture. Do you get the feeling that there's more interesting stuff going on in architecture than there is in other fields? I remember when uh, Derrida used to come to Columbia University he wouldn't be hanging out with the philosophers. He'd be hanging mm. out with Peter Eisenman in the School of Architecture. Mm. So the question is, is there more, more things interesting happening in the field of architecture than in other yeah. fields? Oh, I don't think so. I, I, I think right now um, you have a situation, at least at UB, there's a situation here where it's uh, completely cross-disciplinary. So I engage in... Uh, different, um, you know, research areas with colleagues that are really focused on specifically. So, what are the? Fields. Where is the interesting stuff happening? What departments? 
Well, I mean, you're, you're living in a period of constant acceleration of change, um, and, 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 new, and new technologies are coming out of the lab. Um, there's so many possibilities to rethink architecture along multiple pathways. I don't think there's a single one. Um, I, I went into one person's lab, and they're doing work in thing called transformation optics, which blew my mind. They're literally a, an active field trying to develop invisible materials. I mean, mm. material, materials that bend light around them. So they've been actually able to do that for sound and uh, uh, microwave radiation. And it's actually a weird looking plastic uh, disc. And if you put an object in, inside of it, the microwaves bend around it. So this is called transformation optics. So it, this is a funded field. So I thought, oh, my God, we're talking about maybe a future in which we can have a facade that's invisible. And what would be behind that visible, invisible facade would be literally in a, a dark room and maybe that's a place where you can put a theater <laughs> you know so you have an invisible theater what would that mean you would have a whole nother level of the idea of transparency that came from you know um from uh from Mies with large sheets of glass the idea of the diaphanous quality of space made possible now through large plates of um, glass and then you, very lightweight steel frames so it takes the notion of transparency into a whole nother level so you got one, something like that. Then there's a group of people doing some interesting work on um, biocomposites. In other words, composites that are made from agricultural waste. So you can get all of your materials for a structure that's stronger than steel from, from basically uh, discarded uh, garbage. Um, and then that's highly sustainable. There's hardly any energy put into it. And they're trying to think about ways to process that. So that's another uh, field of uh, study that I'm interested in, but these, you know, these are these are people. These are these again are people I'm going to see in the work in their lab, and so I try to frame what they do in terms of an architectural sensibility. So I don't think it's something uh, necessarily happening in intellectual culture within the architectural domain that's um, unique and super exciting. I think it's the, more now the redefinition of what the architect does. The architect is much more of a I mean, following the Buckminster Fuller model, more of a generalist, um, I still think that there are specific um, problems in architecture that may render it uh, autonomous as a field, but how that autonomy is theorized by its relationship to all these other um, experiments and uh, disciplines, I think that's the exciting model. So it's not literally uh, a student thinking, well, you know, I get my education and then I, you know, I go into an office and that's the only model. There is a lot of different models. The research model, the research architect is a really valuable and exciting um, you know, option for ways of thinking about your career. In fact, my teaching, I like to emphasize to the students the, the, the activity of trying to confront a new methodology and then how you translate it into the, um, the artistic sort of poetic uh, sphere of your discipline. And then you, you get that skill, you know, you, you become able to be more of like an entrepreneur when you graduate. So you leave architecture and you go into the field and you, you can begin to sort of survey the landscape and, and all, with all of its uh, creative technological variation. And you can begin to pull out, you know, things that are specific to the way you work. And you can redefine architecture that way as a kind of like startup cool. model. So listen, Mike, yeah. we got to leave it there. Okay. Uh, this is John LaBelle. This is Visionaries. Our uh, guest has been Mike Silver talking about everything. If you go back to our archive, you'll find that we uh, had a conversation with Mike just a year ago. So, Mike, we'll do it again soon. 
Fantastic. Always a pleasure. I uh, really enjoy uh, our exchanges as usual. Thank you. Okay. Bye.